Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, October 12th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what is it that makes spiders so frightening to us? And why do most of us kill them without sparing a second thought? Plus, a Scottish nightclub that's using the body heat of their dancing patrons to heat and cool the venue. And Prince Charles, trying to out-British everyone else, fuels up his Aston Martin with England's finest wine and cheese byproducts. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. You might remember me recently talking about the spotted lanternflies that have been taking over the east coast of the U.S., or you've encountered local warnings about them. The invasive species have evoked kill-on-site orders from local governments and ecologists due to their potential to massively disrupt trees and crops. But part of why the strict messaging had to go out was because the spotted lanternflies are actually really cool looking, kind of nice. You know, they don't look like the kind of bug you'd want to immediately squash to death, so officials knew that people would need the extra push to get the job done. But one pest that we humans seem to have no trouble killing as soon as we see them? Spiders. The BBC recently dug into why it is that so many of us are what they call casual spider murderers. First, they share some interesting background about spiders, quoting the BBC. Though our evolutionary paths diverged at least 530 million years ago, we share many of the same organs and body parts, such as kneecaps and similar brain chemicals from dopamine to adrenaline. No one has ever studied spider emotions directly, but it's easy to imagine that they might be more relatable than you would think. End quote. In some smaller species, their brains are actually in their legs, but regardless of where it's located, spiders appear to be super smart. They're able to plan ahead to outwit their prey and are, of course, able to make those intricate webs. Some of them can even spell out messages in their webs. Okay, probably not really, unless the spider's name is Charlotte and she's working hard to save some pig named Wilbur. But spiders can live for a really long time, when we humans aren't flattening them with a rolled-up magazine, that is. One spider we know of lived to be 43 years old. She was known as Number 16 and eventually died after being stung by a parasitic wasp, but the ecologist who'd looked after her for years says she could have lived a lot longer had it not been for the sting. A 43-year-old spider! I had no idea. But if you're still struggling to empathize with spiders here, don't worry. Jeffrey Lockwood, professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming and the author of The Infested Mind, Why Humans Fear, Loathe, and Love Insects, says that spiders are like the perfect storm of evolution and culture to be found uniquely repulsive by humans. Quoting the BBC, Human infants, as young as just five months old, tend to be more threatened by images of spiders than those of other organisms, suggesting that our aversion to them is partly innate, perhaps having evolved to prevent us from casually picking up ones that are venomous, end quote. Of course, there's also the nurture argument that probably adds to that. You know, we grow up seeing adults who are frightened by them, or are read books and nursery rhymes that feature scary spider villains. And as we grow older, sensational news headlines and urban legends about types of gruesome deaths from spider bites collect in our subconscious. But there are other creatures out there that are equally as dangerous, and we're not as naturally scared of them, so what gives? 
Quoting again, One possible explanation is just how extraterrestrial they seem, with unreasonable numbers of eyes, up to 12, too many legs, and toothless fangs. Their behavior is also strikingly different to that of most mammals, building webs to trap unwary passers-by, then mummifying them and sucking out their insides, or eating their mates and casually producing whole swarms of offspring. And so their unfamiliarity binds with a kind of commonness so that their, I think the technical term is, we find them creepy, says Lockwood. Spiders are genetically alien too. Though humans and spiders are distantly related, we are much less closely related to them than we are to other animals, such as mammals or even reptiles, end quote. And according to a 2019 study, our empathy for animals actually decreases commensurately with the amount of time since our evolutionary paths with that animal diverged. So that makes us extra unlikely to empathize with spiders. And Lockwood posits a further reason spiders irk us, one which I definitely agree with personally. They exemplify a lack of control over our environment. You know, it's tough to maintain the facade that you're in charge of your world when a spider or insect darts out from under a cabinet and evades catching. Or when you're simply trying to walk through your garden gate and you get caught in a spider's web, like someone's booby-trapped your home while you were away. Like many insects, they also don't really make noise. We have hardly any way of perceiving what it is they're feeling or thinking, so if we kill or torture them, we don't see them feeling pain. But the larger they are, the more trouble we have killing them. Lockwood says this is because that starts making them more relatable. If they were completely unrelatable, he says, then, quote, I think we wouldn't have much difficulty with them. But there's a sense of animalness about them. We recognize them at one level, but then we're completely unable to relate to them at another level, end quote. Huge spiders, like six-inch huntsmen's, are more likely to be encouraged to exit the house rather than squashed somehow. Many people have trouble killing cockroaches for the same reason. That visceral crunch reminds people that they are committing an act of violence, something that they can conveniently forget about when killing something smaller and quieter. And smaller spiders really do get the shaft, especially if they're ugly, as most spiders are perceived to be. Sadly, there's a real phenomenon called the babyface effect, in which we, quote, accidentally treat people and animals with naturally neotenous or childlike features as though they are actual babies. For example, oversized eyes, large foreheads, small noses and chins, and cherubic little lips can trigger powerful feelings of empathy, compassion, and affection in humans, end quote. The very real effects of this include so-called cute species getting more funding in conservation efforts, and as far as spiders go, we associate their ugliness with being less kind and generally scary. But we don't have to be this way. At least in the name of biodiversity, if not for recognizing the unique worth of all living creatures, we can try a bit harder not to knee-jerk murder spiders on sight. If it helps, you can make up stories about them, you know, give them names, anything to make them seem a little bit more human and relatable, or just remind yourself of the numbers. Spiders kill between 400 and 800 million tons of prey every single year. Prey that could be even more annoying to us, or worse, cause disease in us humans. So keeping them alive is good for our health, no matter how creepy they may seem. But as for those spotted lanternflies, the governments of New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania would still very much like you to ruthlessly murder those invasive jerks as soon as you spot them.
A nightclub in Glasgow, Scotland, is pulling out all the stops to impress when world leaders descend upon their town for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, next month. They're using a new renewable technology to heat and cool their venue that will be powered by, as Planet Ark said, the power of dance. Specifically, they're using the heat generated by the dancing crowds at the venue as a type of heat pump. And the venue, by the way, is called SWG3, all caps. I'm not sure if it's meant to, like, spell swag or what, so I'm just going to call it SWG3. I'm clearly not cool enough for a place like this. Quoting Fast Company. The way most heat pumps work is that you drill a hole hundreds of feet into the ground. Those boreholes are filled with coils, which are long, fluid-filled pipes that act as the conduit between the relatively constant 50-degree temperature of rocks in the ground and the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning in a building. The idea is that the stable temperature inside the earth can literally be piped up to balance out the temperature fluctuations during winter or summer in your home. However, SWG3 puts a new spin on heat pumps. The venue will use air collectors in the ceiling to suck up the hot air put out by club goers on the floor. These air collectors are pretty standard, but usually the heat they capture is transferred outside the building. And that wastes heat, says David Townsend, founder of Town Rock Energy, who's leading the project. Why not capture it and use it? Otherwise, the heating is done by gas boilers. So, in the SWG3 build, body heat is siphoned from the ceiling into one of 17 massive boreholes, each drilled up to 650 feet into the earth. The body heat goes down into these holes, warming the surrounding rocks, which act like heat batteries, and cooling the club during parties when it's full on Friday and Saturday nights without the need for AC. However, Sunday through Thursday, when the building is used for office and arts space, it often needs to be warmed. During those times, the heat from the dancing can be pumped from the rocks back into the building above. End quote. SWG3's website notes that a human body just hanging around radiates about 100 watts of excess heat. Put that person in a confined space with a bunch of other people dancing enthusiastically around them, and you get enough wattage that the venue is not at all concerned about warming the building during Scotland's cold winters. They estimate they'll save 70 tons of CO2 annually, which will help them towards their goal of eventually becoming a carbon-neutral venue. I definitely want to keep an eye on this one and see how it turns out, because ignoring for a moment installation and maintenance costs, this seems like a pretty slam-dunk solution for tons of different venues around the world. Well, another person getting in the COP26 spirit over in the UK is Prince Charles, who reminded the world in an exclusive BBC interview yesterday that his favorite Aston Martin runs on wine and cheese byproducts. Royals, they're just like us. Quoting Gizmodo, Charles is a notorious car lover. His taste runs somewhat counter to other rich car aficionados, though. While Charles told the BBC that most cars on his estates are electric, he's had to get creative for some of his older models. The Aston Martin is a point-in-case. The blue DB6 MK2 Volante that was a gift to Chuck on his 21st birthday from his mother, Queen Elizabeth II... He had the Volante retrofitted in 2008 to run on a type of bioethanol fuel, which he said is made from the surplus English white wine and whey from the cheese process. 
Technically, Charles isn't shoving wedges of brie and pouring bottles of Cabernet into his ride. The fuel Charles' car runs on is called E85, a flexible fuel that blends ethanol with some percentage of gasoline. Ethanol can be made from a bunch of different plant byproducts, most notably corn and sugar, but certain leftovers from the wine and cheese-making processes can also be used. End quote. And fun as it sounds, Gizmodo brings up two very important points here. One, most people don't have vintage cars and cash to throw at mechanics to experiment with bougie biofuels. And two, some critics of biofuels say that pivoting to biofuels could actually increase greenhouse gas emissions because of the necessary increase in land use for planting, say, corn to use as fuel. Plus, apparently a lot of the studies done on the pros or cons of biofuels have been funded by the agricultural or oil industries, so the research maybe needs a little bit more work there. So as fun as biofuels have always sounded, and delicious as some of them apparently smell, electric vehicles are probably still the way to go. That and reducing our dependence on driving overall. As Gizmodo put it, referencing a few other personal changes Prince Charles has made to offset his carbon output, like reducing his meat and dairy intake, quote, All this effort is almost certainly offset by Charles's frequent private jet trips. All the wine and cheese powered drives in the world can't make up for the fact that private jet flights, mansion lifestyles, and other habits of the ultra rich are doing a disproportionate amount of damage to the planet, and the solutions they may dream up for themselves aren't helpful for those of us without the manufacturers of Aston Martin on our speed dial, end quote. Well, just a reminder, in case you have any interest in watching along, that William Shatner is being blasted off into space tomorrow on a Blue Origin rocket. He'll become the oldest person to fly into space, flying on another of the company's suborbital flights for a quick 10-minute jaunt at 62 miles altitude. He'll be joined by three others, including the first Blue Origin employee to go up, Audrey Powers. They are scheduled for liftoff tomorrow morning, Wednesday the 13th at 9.30 a.m. Eastern and will be taking off from Blue Origin's launch site in West Texas. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.